this week on the Backtable Podcast. I like to think that I'm I'm using IR as a lab to test a theory of ethics. Maybe it'll blow up in my face. Maybe this is all silly, but I never thought that even going through grad school in ethics, it just didn't resonate with me of being like a practical thing that I would find helpful being a physician. And so I wanted to change that. So that, that's part of what I want to do with this initiative is create educational materials specifically for IRs, which is maybe a little bit easier to approach than like those research ethics modules that a lot of institutions have us do. I find them boring and I like ethics. So. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable Podcast. If you are a new listener, welcome. For our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. Backtable is a podcast committed to all things IR and endovascular. I'm Chris Beck and I'll be your host today. I'm a private practice interventional radiologist based out of New Orleans, Louisiana. Per usual, we have a great topic lined up for today. But before we get to that, I'd like to thank our sponsor, RadPad. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians. Clinically proven radiation protection during CINE and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RADPAD radiation protection shields for all your flare guided interventions. See RADPAD.com for more information or contact them at info at RADPAD.com for a free radiation evaluation and no-brainer radiation protection cap. Please let them know you heard about it on the Backtable podcast if you do contact them. All right. Our guest today is Dr. Eric Keller. For our regular listeners, you may remember Dr. Keller from a recent episode, um, number 63, where we discussed the identity of interventional radiology and turf wars. Today, we'll be talking about ethics in interventional radiology. So, Eric, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's really awesome hanging out with you all and getting the chance to discuss this topic. Yeah, for sure. Felt like we had you on last time and, you know, offline, we were kind of talking about other great ideas. And uh, I know this is a, a project of yours that you've been working on broad scope. But would you, before we jump in, would you just take a second to kind of introduce yourself and tell everyone uh, where you are and, and your training and everything like that? Yeah, sure thing. So currently I'm in my PGY three years. So now R2 year at Stanford University. I'm one of the integrated IRDR residents there. And one of my backgrounds is that I did a master's in medical humanities and bioethics. And so that's actually how I got involved in the thing that we talked about last time about using medical anthropology to look at professional cultures in healthcare. But more recently, I've been using that background to explore ethics in interventional radiology. That's awesome. So I guess uh, a good place to start is can you just kind of define what medical ethics is and and the scope of that and, and how it applies to interventional radiology? Yeah, so actually it's a more complex question than it would seem in that in the ethics world, it's kind of debated if medical ethics is its own field or if it's really a hodgepodge of different fields talking about the same thing, if that makes sense. But the way that I think about it, to keep things simple, is I think of ethics as just the collective values of a group of people. Like what, so the ethics of interventional radiology would be, what are the collective values of interventional radiologists in the sense of how do we then use those values to decide what's the right or wrong thing to do in a situation? And 
that's going to change depending on the culture that you ask. So the ethics of people in one country might be slightly different than the ethics in a different country. That's why I like to think about it, the collective values of a group of people is the way that I keep it simple for myself. And then there's different types of it. So you can look at it more in this theoretical idea that's called normative ethics, which is like, what should we do? Or you can look at it in more of this descriptive applied ethics, which is like, okay, well, that's what we should do, but what do people actually do and what do they think about those things? So there's actually different ways you can slice it. And that's why lots of different cooks in the kitchen, lots of different fields to get involved, like law, anthropology, philosophers, et cetera. Yeah, that was uh, one of the challenges in, in prepping for this uh, topic is in that this topic has a lot of nuances, a lot of layers. And so hopefully, hopefully we can unpack it for the audience in a way that makes sense. You know, I'll, I'll leave that up to you. So getting a little bit more into like some specific things with regarding interventional radiology, some different topics I wrote down to discuss is like maybe if we just took ethics and broke it down into some components that I think a lot of interventional radiologists are familiar with, like if we discussed ethics around like the informed consent, palliative care, our complications, maybe we can start getting into some different topics around this. So I guess we'll just start out. Can we talk about ethics like in regards to the informed consent? Yeah. And actually, maybe before we do the specifics, it's worth talking about why that approach resonates so much, because exactly what you're reflecting in that response is why I think medical ethics doesn't resonate with a lot of clinicians, which is kind of the theory that I want to test out with this initiative. Yeah, let's do it. Which is that I, I've always liked to say I have a love-hate relationship with ethics, even doing it like in grad school, in the sense that obviously I think it's important. Like these are important questions, challenging situations that we get ourselves into. But I guess I, I would be in these, you know, graduate ethics courses and mainly would focus on that normative thing. What should physicians be doing? And so we talk about it and usually the approach in ethics seems to be that you look at physicians, we say, hey, physicians, you're doing A, you should be doing B. And here's this 50 page long analysis of why you should be doing B and go figure one, most people don't read the 50 page long thing. And two, even if they do, they keep doing A because there's probably a reason why they're doing A. And so that always bothered me. I was like, there's a lot of value here in what these people are talking about, but there seems to be a disconnect between actual practice. And so I wanted to try and figure out a way that you could bridge those two. And that was the idea of applied ethics and IR, that I thought that would be an opportunity to go about it a different way, which I could talk about as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think maybe you're, you're exactly right. Before we get into like the more specifics, like how did you, how did you resolve that? Like, or how, or how did you, you know, or how are you trying to bridge that gap between, you know, the, the, the high minded ethics and, you know, the down and dirty practice of interventional radiology? So I guess my my theory was that the way that I saw ethics usually approach is a top-down approach. You start with this meaty theory and then look at what's going on out there and then tell people what they should be doing or how they should do things in a better way. But I think that if you want to do something that resonates with people and is perceived as helpful, you kind of got to do your market research. You got to understand your audience and where they're coming from. And so that gets into that applied ethics approach that's more bottom up. Start by understanding what are the challenging situations that interventional radiologists face? What do they think about those situations? And then design tools or workflows or things like that that then helps them navigate those challenging situations better. 
So that's the opposite approach, but it tends to not be the common approach in ethics. And so largely I had that idea a long time ago and I never acted on it because I thought I was just an outlier. But then as I started to get into the IR world, I was like, well, you know, ethics in IR doesn't really exist. Like that's not a big part of our field. And so this is a perfect opportunity to test that theory that if you approach ethics in this ground up, especially specific way, maybe it will be perceived as more helpful and useful to a specialty. So that's why I started doing it a year ago and now it's, it's grown a lot more. So I think that we're getting a little bit of traction. And then there's another part to it too, but I don't want to go on too long. No, no, actually, like, like I, th- I think it's very worth uh, just c- kind of continue to push on because what, what so far, everything that you said to me has really resonated in that, you know, thinking about ethics, like from a very high minded approach, can it, there's not a lot of practical applications or it, it's so convoluted and difficult that it kind of makes your head hurt. And so approaching up from a bottom up process makes a lot of sense to me. So, yeah, continue on what you're saying. Yeah. And so at least it made sense to me too. So I'm glad it it resonates with other people. But the other part of it is that usually the type of the theory of medical ethics that's taught in medical school tends to be something called principalism. And it's because it lends itself very well to a multiple choice test. And essentially principalism is that, well, let's think about ethics that there's kind of four main ethical principles that can come into conflict. And so your way of deciding what's the right thing to do is I say, you know, principle one, like autonomy is coming into conflict with beneficence. And I figure out the right thing to do by figuring out which one should take priority. Sounds nice, but I've never heard anyone in the middle of an IR case be like, hang on a second, guys, what two ethical principles here are coming into conflict to figure out the right thing to do? It's, it's just not the way that clinicians think. But there's a lot of other ethical theories out there. And actually, I think the ethical theory that better reflects the way that I would describe the way the IRs think is two of them. One is casuistry and the other one is virtue ethics. And casuistry is basically like, let's look at the other times that we've had this situation come up and how those turned out to figure out what I should do in this situation. I think usually we're very like case-based and case-minded. And that's totally a valid ethical approach. It's just usually not the thing that's taught. And so the other part of this applied ethics and IR thing was that, well, if we're going to talk about it, this at conferences, we're not going to do a didactic session for an hour talking about principles. We're going to do a case-based discussion of the sticky situations we get into if you want it to resonate with IRs. That sounds very much like the speed of interventional radiology. And what about, I think the other one you mentioned was virtue ethics. Is that another process and another way to look at it? Yeah, virtue ethics is more, rather than focusing on specific actions, you focus on the intention behind the action. And I think that that's more helpful in healthcare just because it's really hard to have absolutes in healthcare to be like, well, in situation A, you should never do X. It it usually doesn't work out that way. You know, like even if we talk about like futility. So if you say that, well, I have this, you know, consult for this gastrostomy tube, and in situations where the patient meets X, Y, and Z, we should never do a gastrostomy tube. It's tough because usually there's a lot of complexity in that decision. So it's almost more helpful to say, to start thinking about, well, what are the, the values of things that we think about? Like what's the end game when we put in a gastrostomy tube and are we achieving that ends or not by doing it? Is, I think it's a little more flexible and tends to be the way that people approach things when they think about like morals and ethics in healthcare. So that's why I think the combination of that case-based casuistry with virtue ethics, when we talk about ethics in IR, 
is, is probably a little more helpful and more like the way that IRs actually think rather than, say, principalism or other ethical theories. Sure. And do we have, or, or is it possible to borrow on other specialties? Uh, you know, it, it maybe in regards to interventional radiology, and we're kind of uh, an early slash emerging specialty, is it helpful to look to internal medicine, surgery, or, sur- or some um, specialties that have been around a little bit longer as far as like what they're doing and, and their approach to things? I think so. Only the, the only caveat I'd say is that this idea of ground up specialty specific ethics doesn't really exist anywhere else. This is something that would be new, actually, and something that we could contribute as IRs to kind of the rest of medicine is a different way to approach things. So I am in this like initiative trying to pull from what other specialties are doing, but largely what other specialties have done have been that top down approach where they're like, well, this is what the AMA says about medical ethics. And I'm an emergency medicine society, so I'm going to take their code of ethics and kind of adjust it a little bit to emergency medicine specific things. But that's still pretty top down. You're not really talking to emergency medicine physicians and saying these are the things they're concerned about and what, how they think about it. That, that's different and something that hopefully if it works out in IR, maybe would be something that would be helpful to other specialties. That's very interesting. So... In a lot of ways, you're breaking new ground here. I, I like to think that I'm, I'm using IR as a lab to test a theory of ethics. Maybe it'll blow up in my face. Maybe this is all silly. But I never thought that even going through grad school in ethics, it just didn't resonate with me of being like a practical thing that I would find helpful being a physician. And so I wanted to change that. That's awesome. Okay, so now some groundwork. Anything else to talk about before we kind of jump into some of the components of the the ground up approach, where we talk about some of the components of interventional radiology and how uh, ethics plays in? Nah, that's that's my extended elevator pitch about <laughs> applied ethics, and then you know we kind of focused on because of the anthropology stuff, five main areas that seem to be kind of sticky situations that I was tend to get into. Okay. And, and would you go ahead and just kind of uh, talk about, well, or just first just lift off those five main areas and then we'll kind of tackle them one by one. Yeah. So I think futility is a big one. Futility versus palliative care. It's like, when do you say no? And how do you walk that line? Consent, which is relevant throughout healthcare, but sometimes it'd be difficult for IR because people are less familiar about what we do. So there's that extra burden there sometimes, especially if there's bar- communication barriers. There's dealing with complications and the implications of that is a big one for all procedural specialties. There's conflicts of interest slash research ethics. You know, we invent a lot of the tools that we then use that can create a lot of issues sometimes and complexity to navigate. And then there's the ethics of kind of what we talked about in the other episode, which is kind of tribalism, the interplay between the positive aspects of competition versus the positive aspects of collaboration. And what are the implications or business ethics of how you practice medicine? Okay. All right. So if I had my choice, I would say let's dive into futility versus informed consent. And because you're the guest today, I'll, I'll leave it up to you. Which one do you want to tackle first? Well, for our audience, we actually just did a, a survey through SIR of like ethics topics. And apparently people think that futility is the most pressing issue. So maybe we should start there. I think that's smart. 
All right. So let's so let's talk about uh, futility and how ethics kind of plays a role in that. And, and maybe first, can you lay some groundwork and in, in terms of like what you guys learn from the uh, SIR survey and uh, just kind of establish some like what are we talking about when we're talking about futility and palliative care? Yeah. So futility, super nebulous topic in that mm-hmm. it's been debated for decades about how, how do you define that? Because the problem with it is that you might be able to find it in retrospect. Like you look back and say, okay, we did that procedure. Like we put in the gastroscopy tube and it really had no benefit whatsoever. But prospectively, that's very difficult. And the other part of it that's complex is that, you know, not only are we limited in our ability to perfectly predict if something is going to have benefit, especially near the end of life, but then the concept of benefit is very value-laden in that you know, maybe it's not going to extend the person's life, but, you know, feeding is culturally important to the family or something like that. So there's a lot of other facets of this idea of benefit that makes it very complex, and difficult to navigate. And then on top of that, for IR, it's tough because when we're having these conversations, one, we're usually not the primary team. So that adds a lot of complexity to it. But then two, because we do a lot of things that are minimally invasive, people usually don't die from their IR procedure. It's not like cardiothoracic surgery where you could say, I'm not going to crack your chest open because you wouldn't survive it. They're usually probably going to survive it. And so that adds an extra layer of complexity when you're having those conversations. Yes, I I think that what you said really makes sense in terms of a couple of things. One, futility, extremely nebulous topic. and, And I think what one person's definition is and another person may disagree with. But also in terms of like the IR procedures, relatively low morbidity, low complication rate is, is the rule of thumb, although not always, but relative to other like surgical and subsurgical specialties. And so I think that creates less of a down or less of a, it tends to tip the risk benefit ratio in a different direction when you don't have to worry about or you worry less about some of these things. So how does how does ethics play in in terms of and how to think about this topic and and also deal with procedures or a, a route of care that may involve IR? Yes. So really, the ethical implications are that it's pretty unanimously accepted that providing care that's futile is unethical. That if you're exposing someone to risk without a meaningful chance of benefit, then that is something that should not be done even based on the the morality of it. But then when you get into costs, there's also this extra aspect of why futility is important in that one, there's a disproportionate amount of healthcare spending that happens at the end of life. But then two, it's actually been shown that providing care that is perceived as futile is independently associated with burnout, that it can be very distressing to the people that perform those procedures, especially if they feel forced to do so in some way. So that's that's why I felt like it was important ethically and also just uh, practically as a topic to address as this as a specialty. Wow. So I, I actually didn't realize that. Like I, I could have guessed the first two, but I didn't realize that providing feudal care was associated with burnout. It's interesting. So in, in term, I think that the things that you said make a lot of sense to people, but how, so where does the the interplay of ethics come in to helping us resolve or, or helping us deal with like procedures in which we're either consulted on or are asked to perform with regards to futility. Yeah, so true to the applied ethics approach, step one was figuring out 
do people even think about this? So it's, it's a different problem if people don't think that futility is an issue versus they think it is and they don't know what to do with it. And so we started with a study basically interviewing a bunch of different people and different practices about like, when, when do you say no? Like, how do you approach those? What are your metrics for deciding if something is, is helpful or not? And I think that that study was helpful. It's not, it's not published yet, but it definitely showed that complexity, but it also gave a lot of opportunities for improvement. So one thing is that it's very qualitative in nature. So some people trying to find utilities more quantitative, like less than a 1% chance of you know, meeting outcome X is futile. But I always tend not to think that way. It was very, we were very qualitative in our thought process. There's a lot of variety in if we thought something was futile or not. So for example, people who had been in practice longer and people who had been in practice longer in academic settings tend to perceive things as more futile or perceive futility as more of an issue than people who were either younger or, you know, closer to fellowship or people in private practice settings. So I think it speaks that one is there's a complexity in how we even make that assessment, but there's also these environmental factors that play in as well, whether we perceive something as futile, but then also, even if we perceive something as futile, if then we ultimately still do it anyways, which is the extra complexity for IR, like we were talking about earlier. Yes. So. What, so in, in trying to tease some of these things out and, and maybe your study is working on it or maybe it's still in the early, early phases, like how do you go about just kind of looking at this? I mean, because the, the problem is the problem is real. The struggle is real. And and so how do you even go about like designing a study or uh, a, a research uh, project around this to to help like tease these things apart and and find out? Well, yeah, just one. How do you figure it out? Yeah. So, so I think first was starting with the qualitative thing to rather than like a survey where we're kind of putting words in people's mouths in a way and like only asking certain questions, this allowed us to have a conversation doing those interviews so we could figure out what, where, how, where people were coming from, kind of provide a roadmap, and then we can do more quantitative things. So since then, we then started looking at more of an intervention phase. So the idea is that there was this sense that IRs didn't have an idea of whether something was beneficial or not. They didn't feel like they had a lot of resources to navigate it. But over in the palliative care world, they actually have a ton of resources to navigate this. They even have guidelines around futility. So I saw our mission as like, well, maybe we need to connect the two because one example was that in a one private practice setting and it was a Kaiser group actually out here in California, what they had done was they had a lot of consults for G-tubes in people with severe dementia. And they felt like that that was futile and it was wearing on them. So they partnered with palliative care because actually there's a multi or there's a uh, geriatric society guideline basically saying that G-tubes in people with severe dementia that are bed bound is futile and should not be done. So they partnered with palliative care and they created an institutional policy not to do that anymore. And so I saw it as an opportunity to prospectively try to connect IR and palliative care to create a workflow where we screen our, our requests to see, is this potentially something that might be a palliative intervention? And if so, then someone probably should have had some sort of conversation. So it's called advanced care planning. I could talk about more, but advanced care planning is basically some sort of goals of care discussion or something to define that person's value. So you actually know 
is this actually meeting some meaningful benefit in the patient and family's mind? And we did a retrospective study to see how often that's used in IR, and it's actually not used that often. We do a lot of procedures where people end up dying shortly after, and no one has had any sort of conversation like that within three months. So less than half of the time for inpatients and less than a fourth of the time for outpatients. So I think it's an opportunity that if we could somehow create a workflow where we more often are having those conversations, it doesn't have to be us. It can be the you know, primary team having that conversation or whoever knows the patient best. It might help us then have a little less moral distress around our, is what we're doing actually beneficial and let us feel better about those decisions that we're actually doing something that aligns with the patient's goals of care. So I think that's very, that's very interesting in that you drew upon some of the resources like from, I forgot what organization, what was the name of the geriatric? Oh, geriatric. Yeah. Uh, There's a geriatric society that put out that guideline. It was really interesting. Yes. Are there any other examples where you've kind of borrowed something either from that society or another society and and come across something? I mean, because this, that seems like, like a very real world solution to something that comes up like in in people's practices if if i had i mean i guess it depends on everyone's practice but that seems like a common issue that comes up i mean i, I can speak to that personally yeah. can you think of any other examples where you you borrowed or, or yeah borrowed from other uh, societies in terms of helping like resolve some of these like issues of futility not so much other ones where we borrowed it from another society, but there are other practical examples that we've been doing. So that sure. was one. Another one is uh, multiple biliary drains to bring down someone's bilirubin to then eventually have them get chemo was felt to be a very common, futile request. And so we just asked the question and actually our, so we're actually a group of people in this initiative doing these studies or whatnot. So this was a group at UCSF that's part of our group that did this led by Rana, who is one of the IRDR residents over there, basically asking like, how often does that actually help? And the answer is less than 30% of the time. If you put in more than one biliary drain, does that person actually end up going on to get chemotherapy in any meaningful way? So it's just to have that baseline data that then you can start to create a policy around like the Kaiser group did around G-tubes. And so that's the idea of this applied ethics approach is you you do the qualitative thing to figure out how what people think about it, what the key issues are, and then you narrow in on it, get quantitative data, and then ultimately can create a policy to actually have some meaningful change rather than doing this top-down approach to ethics. So I'll just say that the the two that you've named, like multiple biliary tubes and 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 G tubes and dementin patients, those those have both hit very close to my practice. So now I'm just kind of curious, what other what are some of the other topics that you guys are, are kind of starting to look into? I think that those are the two most common when, because part of the interviews, I'd basically ask people if they say like, oh yeah, I get a bunch of requests for things that I don't think provide benefit. And I'm like, well, what are some examples? So G-tubes, multiple biliary drains are definitely really common. Some people feel like heroic liver-directed therapy sometimes. It's like the... 20 centimeter HCC with bone mats, but you know, the person eyeballs really well. So maybe I want to do that. That one's a little more difficult, I think, mm-hmm. because I think there's a lot of variability in that decision. So look, trying to suss that out in a way is a little more complex. So I don't, we haven't been able to think of a good way to approach some of the other ones because kind of like, and we could talk about this later about research ethics, but 
I think that when you're talking about these sort of topics, you have to be really careful because, you know, we could do a study and say, well, how often does the person die right after an IR procedure? And maybe it's like 10% of the time. And you could pitch that and say, well, we're doing 10% of things that are futile, but that's not true, right? We're asked to like embolize people or they're bleeding and sometimes they die. So you have to be really thoughtful about it. And unfortunately, right now, we've only been able to really tackle the G-tube and biliary drain situation. But we have a group of like 30 people that are working on this stuff. Well, I can tell you that if you if you tackled these two, I, I think there are a lot of interventional radiologists around the country. And probably, if I had to guess, around the world, that would be extremely thankful. And, and like you said, there's a lot of reasons to, I mean, if it's not already apparent to our listeners, like there's a lot of reasons this is important. Like you've already mentioned, uh, cost, rate of burnout, and then, you know, primarily, like, is are the patients benefiting from these things? I think what you just said, though, is an excellent segue. Why don't we start getting into uh, research ethics? I know we were talking a little bit offline about it, but can you kind of talk about what research ethics is and, and why that is is kind of it's has some own facets to it, which are, are a little bit interesting? Yeah, we've been tying it with conflicts of interest, too, only because I think when people talk about when they think about research ethics or ethical dilemmas around research, usually conflicts of interest come up. And of course, conflicts of interest can exist, like issues around that can exist outside of research. But I've been kind of tying them together. But research ethics in itself, like most of these things, can be a very wide topic. But I like to boil it down into there's the idea of ethical collection of data and there's the idea of ethical presentation of data, to keep it simple. And both of those activities can have their own dilemmas and challenges that can come up to be to think about and for ir specifically i think a lot of our complexity comes from our relationship with industry that our specialty is what it is today because of strong partnerships between clinicians and industry but of course that raises the question of well we create a lot of the tools we use and then are we biased in what we use and you know what are the implications of that so I feel like that's usually why I was tying conflicts of interest and research ethics together. Because for IR, I think they're they're very close in what things we tend to run up against. Yeah, I, I believe there is like an intimate relationship between those two. And I, I think everyone's very used to seeing the conflict of interest statements come across just about every presenter. And, and you know, it's the three to five second slide in which someone tells you that, you know, here are their conflicts. These are the the companies that they're affiliated with, and then they go on to give a fantastic talk, which may or may not, you know, have any bias in it. And if, from my perspective, usually not, but there's probably some bias that might be baked into, there's probably bias baked into the process. And so how, how do you go about, like, how did you go about like looking about what specifically you wanted to look at with regards to research ethics? Well, I, I think one of the things that I wanted to think about with this topic is that there are definitely a large portion of the ethics community that believes that all conflicts of interest are wrong. So me giving a talk, like maybe I really believe in this IVC filter and me going and giving paid talks about that IVC filter is wrong. And there are also people that don't believe that all conflicts of interest is wrong. And I tend to be more in that camp. And the reason why is because I think the the moral issue around conflicts of interest isn't the existence of them, it's bias. Bias is the thing that we're afraid of, right? Is that mm -hmm. I'm going to, like that IVC filter is going to be worse than the other IVC filter, but I'm going to ignore that because I'm biased and I want to keep using this one. 
because I'm being paid for it. That's what we're afraid of. But to say that just because I have a relationship, I have that bias, I think isn't necessarily true. I think the question is that, yes, that does bias me to some point, but bias can be managed. And so the real question for us as interventional radiologists isn't how do you get rid of conflicts of interest? It's how do you manage the potential bias from them so that we can be thoughtful at what we publish and what we do for our patients. All right. So I think that lends itself to the question is, so how do you manage bias or how do you start looking at this problem to start drumming up the solution to managing bias? Yeah. So this one's not as far along. So we haven't done, we designed the qualitative study to do, which would basically be similarly like utility to interview a bunch of interventional radiologists and partners in industry about their perceptions of conflicts of interest. Like what do we think is okay and not okay? And I think that'll let us have a roadmap, much like the futility situation to figure out what's a thoughtful way to to go about this. Because I I don't think necessarily the disclosure slides are the way, way to do it. Like, I, I think they're fine in what they are, but I don't think that necessarily addresses the bias in a way. Like you can be, you can be super biased and show a slide for two seconds and that might not mean anything. So I think there might be other ways to go about it that we could do in a more thoughtful way that doesn't stifle innovation. Cause I think that's the risk is you don't want to get rid of those relationships because there are good aspects of it. So I think that's the challenge for the applied ethics group. So I, I will say we were, we were talking a little bit offline and this was something that one of the other guys uh, within Backtable asked us to uh, bring up and it, and it ties into research ethics was there was an article in the JVS or the Journal of Vascular Surgery, uh, Surgery entitled Prevalence of Unprofessional Social Media Content Among Young Vascular Surgeons. And that I think ties into research ethics and maybe the collect maybe both collection and presentation of data. And can you talk a little bit about this study and maybe how it highlights some issues revolving around research ethics? Yeah, I think that it's actually a really good example of multiple parts of the process. What can go wrong is I think that there are ethical implications in the type of questions that you ask and how you ask those questions. And then there are also ethical implications in how you present that data. And I think that that study was flawed on both accounts in that the questions they were asking, even if it was well-intended going back to the, the virtue ethics thing, like maybe there was some good intent behind that idea of trying to empower young surgeons in some way to present themselves in some way, but it's also very paternalistic to look paternalistic way to look at things and the way that they went about it showed kind of a lack of, of thoughtfulness and insight. I think. And so those are the type of things that we're trying to get away from is that you can click through the city training or whatever your institution has you do for research ethics training, but maybe you don't internalize any of that information. So I think the challenge for us is that how do we avoid something like that happening in our specialty? Do we have the processes in place and resources that are meaningful to people to help avoid that from happening? Hopefully you have your own, you know, moral compass in a way to when you're asking those questions at some point, be like, mm, this probably isn't okay. 
before it would get published and everything else. But I think it's an excellent example of why you have to be very thoughtful about the type of questions you ask and how you ask them. Sure. I think, you know, first, when looking at this paper, almost certainly the, the, the physicians that put it together were well-meaning. I, I guess I just assumed, and, and I have no idea, and maybe this is part of my own internal bias, that it, it's like well-meaning persons who maybe are, are not equipped with, you know, I mean, certainly not everyone has your skill set, just aren't equipped to talk about some things and you just, you know, inertia or momentum starts to build with a paper and then all of a sudden you're you're putting out a paper that maybe it went somewhere you hadn't intended on in the first place or you just weren't thinking about the, uh, the, the implications of putting out that paper. For, let's say for an interventional radiologist or, or someone interested in similar questions or, or issues, what are, what are some resources available to like help you navigate like, you know, kind of a fuzzy topic like this? Yeah. I mean, I think there's multiple things in what you said that I'd like to, to touch on is like yeah. the idea of the well-intended thing is actually what I think makes ethics so difficult is that even the most egregious ethic, unethical research that has been highlighted throughout history or things like that. Usually people are well-intended, right? Like people don't wake up in the morning and are like, oh, I'm going to go do this terrible thing. And so that actually makes it more difficult. And the other thing is there's this concept called uh, unbounded ethicality, which is not a very people-friendly term, but it essentially <laughs> means that we, <laughs> we hold others to a much higher standard usually than ourselves when it comes to ethics and the idea of that those same people that wrote that vascular surgery journal, if you would have shown them that, if someone else made it, they may have looked at that and been like, oh, that's not, a, that's a wrong thing to do. But when I do it myself and I know my justifications for doing it, I'm much more likely to justify away concerns that I would have. That's unbounded ethicality or whatnot, that we tend to view ourselves as ethically unbounded as opposed to the constraints we put on other people's moral actions. And so I think then for us, the question is, is that there's a ton of research ethics material out there, but I don't know about you, but I can't think of one off the top of my head that I'm like, wow, that's really fun to read and really resonates with me. And so I think that's one of the challenge for this applied ethics and IR group is trying to create resources that are digestible and meaningful and resonate with people so that they actually have heard about these things or thought, or even if they just ask that question before they end up doing that study. So that, that's part of what I want to do with this initiative is create educational material specifically for IRs, which is maybe a little bit easier to approach than like those research ethics modules that a lot of institutions have us do. I find them boring and I like ethics. So. <laughs> That makes me feel better. That makes me feel better that that you who may be more interested in and also well versed on the topic also finds there to be like a paucity of resource, like helpful resources out there. Speaking of, I think SIR does have a code of ethics. I yep. I read it. It felt it felt very broad and I didn't feel like it was it was packed full of of particularly helpful information. Is and I, I've never read anyone else's code of ethics, but are they are, are the There's code somewhere. of ethics yeah, okay. That's what I was going to ask is the code of ethics, like all kind of align these. And, and what's the, I guess, what, what's the help in, in putting out a document like this? And, and maybe if there is none, is this what maybe it looks like this is exactly what you're trying to address? Yeah. I mean, actually, we could talk forever. There's a whole history to ethics codes and even like that entire idea of 
putting out a code of ethics is a long history. But basically what the people were trying to do that initially did that in the 17 and 1800s was articulate what are those like central values of being a good physician. They were just trying to, to get it out there. And it's been propagated in this way that I think is symbolic of that disconnect. Is that what you're saying? There's actually been studies of this where they've seen how many people are familiar with the code of ethics. Like, you know, ACR has a code of ethics. Like every society in medicine has a code of ethics. But all of those studies, the vast majority of people have never read them, one. And the vast majority of people act on a regular basis in a way that is contrary to those codes of ethics in some way or another. And so it, it begs the question, are that, is that even reflective of the collective values of that group? And so I think that is the perfect example of that disconnect between the normative versus applied ethics approach is that it's nice to think about like, here are the collective values that we want to be as physicians. But if physicians aren't acting in a way or feel like they can't act in a way that does that, or they don't find that document helpful, there's something missing. And that's what I'm trying to create. Okay. Awesome. Well, more power to you. And I hope, I hope it happens. Um, talking more about resources, I think most hospitals and especially uh, large academic institutions have ethics boards and, and they have resources available for if you get into a, a problem that puts you in an ethical dilemma. Can, can we talk a little bit about ethics boards and that process and, and how that can, if that's available at someone's hospital, how they can use that as a, is like an actually boots on the ground uh, resource to help them navigate kind of a difficult situation. Yeah, definitely. I think that, well, yeah, what, what did you want to talk to about it? Yeah. So, yeah, so this is a good question and, and maybe, maybe you don't know, or maybe it's kind of a, like um, taking a left turn, but there are ethics committees out there. Do you know about the process to where someone accesses ethics committees and, and how they help you? Like me personally, I've never accessed an yeah. ethics committee or or been a part of one. And and I know that we have one, but I, I'd actually and, and I'm sure I know about the the process to use it. But how do they how do they help you? Like what information do they give you to then go on to make a decision? I mean, I assume they don't make the decision for you, but they provide you with some kind of guidance on it. Yeah, it's kind of like consult like any other service. So that was actually part of my graduate training was ethics consultation training. And the the idea is exactly that. Just like someone would ask you saying that, hey, I think this person might need an IVC filter or whatnot. Can you help me think about that? It's a little bit broader in the sense of that you're like, mm, someone's asked me to do something that I think is all risk, no benefit. But the other team's really like pushing about it. Can you help us kind of suss this out and help us resolve this like situation or conflict? They're very good with that. And usually the way that they do that is that they talk to each of those groups. They talk to, they try and figure out where everyone is coming from and then use their understanding of the law and the, the ethical cases that they know about before and the philosophy and theories like we were talking about earlier to try and help make a suggestion about the the right thing to do in that situation. So I do think they can be very helpful. The downside of it is that they are a degree disconnected. So when it comes to like these IR specific issues, 
you know, they, they might not be really as familiar with that. So you, it kind of has to be a partnership. And so I see them as helpful, but I also think that we need to create some things in our own specialty to be able to engage them in a more thoughtful way. And I'm sure that the quality of different ethics committees can vary, you know, very much on a local and regional level. And so the amount of help you may receive or how helpful you find the ethics committee's suggestions, I'm, I'm sure can vary widely. I'm interested, maybe we can, uh, maybe there's some way we can kind of pull some of the back table audience to see if anyone's had some encounters with their ethics committees and, and kind of what the resolution of those was. Let me uh, backtrack a little bit, Eric. Can we, there's one thing that I did want to talk about in terms, we did futility, we did research ethics, but one of the things I did want to talk about was the informed consent process. In, in that, in, in the informed consent process, I feel like so many people are doing the informed consent that you would, you would almost think that we would have like a very firm grasp on exactly what we're doing, how to do it. Um, but can we talk about how ethics plays into the informed consent process and, and maybe why you identified that as like something like in particular to take a look at? Yeah, it's actually a different part. It's actually a different type of complexity of something to talk about rather than futility. Cause I feel like futility in IR is like a lot of people think about it, but don't necessarily know what to do about it. Whereas consent people don't think about it because we do it all the time. Yeah, we're we're doing the informed consent constantly, but where does why did you identify like informed consent as one of the the ways that you could help dig into the uh, ethics component of it and, and improve that process? Yeah, so there's actually quite a bit of data showing that consent in healthcare does not live up to its theoretical ideal very often. So that we don't really do a great job of truly informing patients. Now, that's extrapolated a bit, right? It's not like that I can say that about IR specifically, but the idea is generally that we do a pretty good job of describing the procedure and mentioning risks, but we don't usually tend to do a good job of giving consistent information in the type of risks that we quote and numbers that we quote. And we usually don't do a good job in healthcare talking about alternatives very thoughtfully. Now, of course, everyone varies, right? Like there are some people that are rocking it out of the park every day, but as a collective whole in healthcare, it tends to be a struggle for us, particularly when it comes to groups that have some sort of communication barrier. So there's evidence that we don't do as good of a job if we're using an interpreter per se, or trying to you know, make sure that we're presenting things at the national reading level, which is seventh grade. So a lot of times people can end up talking over people's heads, but there's such a power differential that the patient doesn't want to say like, hey, I don't understand what you're saying. So they just nod and agree. So that that's the idea of why it's, it's, it's a hot topic. And it's also something that is very actionable. Unlike the conflicts of interest one where we're not as far along, we're actually a lot further along on this one. So can you kind of talk about some problems that you, I mean, you've kind of mentioned a couple of problems that you identified. So in, in what ways have you made a little headway in regards to the informed consent? Yeah. So one, one thing that's pretty well supportive of a way to do consent better, more efficiently is something called decision support aids, which is like pamphlets, videos, things like that, that present information at that reading level in the person's native language in a consistent way. And it ends up that 
if you use those decision support aids, it increases understanding, satisfaction, actually decreases the amount of time that you spend consenting. So you do something better, more efficiently. The reason why is that usually they're given to patients before you're having the conversation. So part of the conversation's already been had for you. So then you can really focus in on the patient-specific needs. And so the idea was, well, we should create that in IR. It's like when you go to gallbladder clinic, you get the gallbladder you know, surgery little pamphlet about gallbladder surgeries that have a bunch of cool diagrams and stuff like that. Sure. Now, some specialties have little handouts and things, but we don't really have like a, a national standardized like thing to give out to patients about, about these different procedures that tell them, you know, consistent information about the risk benefits and alternative. So that was the idea. So let's create that. So that's what I've been doing for the last year and a half with the interventional initiative with Isabel Newton's help down at UC San Diego. And now we've created them for about 30 procedures vetted by multiple interventional radiologists. And then now we're getting them vetted by diverse patient groups, custom graphics. And then we're going to do a randomized control trial at Stanford and UCSD to demonstrate that they work the same as other decision support aids so that we can share it with the IR community and have something like that for IR. You know, I just want to go back and, and drill down that on, on that concept for some of our listeners who um, may have missed it. But one, Isabel Newton and the IR initiative, the, the work that they're doing, this being, you know, one component of it, that's just been fantastic. And can you give us, I mean, you don't have to name all 30 procedures, but what are some of the procedures that y'all identified and uh, created some decision support aids for? Yeah, well, the idea was to do them for all, you know, of the common procedures that we do. So, I mean, we've made them for like tips, PAD work, PE thrombectomy, central venous axis, feeding tubes, biliary drains, nephrostomy tubes, abscess drains, all across the board, PAE, UFE, all that so, stuff. So what does a decision support aid look like? Is it a video? Is it a document? Or is it a combination of these? So, so you could do anything. Right now, what we have is for those 30, they're handouts with custom graphics and things like that, all to seventh grade reading level. Also through the interventional initiative, they have some videos already made for some of the more complex procedures, like talking about TACE or Y90. And so the idea is that you kind of have a suite of decision support aids because we don't all learn all in the same way. Maybe the handout doesn't resonate with me, but I'm really more of a video person. So the idea would be to have those for our patients where, you know, any IR practice, wherever you would have the suite of decision support aids to give your patient to help them better understand Y90 radial embolization before they undergo that so that they can make an informed decision and be an advocate for themselves. Well, I think that's, uh, sounds awesome. I think a lot of people would be looking forward to having some of these documents or some of these resources available to them. Cause I think what you find once you get out of fellowship is that the amount of resources you have can, can be a little bit thin depending on what institution you go to. And, and then sometimes it's, you, you feel like you're reinventing the wheel, having to create your own decision support aids or, or things to help you with the informed consent. So this would be a fantastic resource that um, I think a lot of IRs would find helpful. That's the hope with a lot of these things is that, you know, and again, I think it's a good example of this different approach is rather than big long thing in JBIR being like, I think consent is problematic and we need to do X or something, or we're not doing a good job of it. So that's not super helpful, you know, because most people are doing the best they can and are trying to be thoughtful and things. And maybe people are knocking out the park. It's more helpful to say, well, if I think that we could do a better job of it, let's create a tool to do that. 
Well, yeah, kudos to you guys. Kind of wrapping things up, we talked a little bit about the the research and ethics and, and your current your current interests. For looking at like a five or a 10 year horizon, where would you like to see like the research of ethics move to, you know, with the next half decade or decade? Yes, I think that in terms of ethics and IR, our end game with this initiative was to ultimately create society guidelines for each of these topics and generate data that then could feed into a guideline that would be a direction or kind of roadmap for people in the specialty is objective number one. Objective number two is those educational materials. Like let's make some materials actually resonate with people and are more helpful and don't bore the life out of them when they talk about ethics. And then the third thing is actually kind of get it on people's radars, actually have this at conferences to say like, actually, actually have a session regularly at SIR that where people can discuss these challenging situations, how they approached it, how other people approached it. And we got to trial that at a conference in Denver last December called the Mile High Meltdown. And we were on the schedule to do it at Western Angio this year and SIR. But of course, with the pandemic, those conferences got you know adjusted. So hopefully we'll get to trial those next year. So those are the three main objectives. And then maybe in 10 years, Maybe this serves as a, an example for other specialties as a different way to approach ethics rather than making another code of ethics and sending it out to people, trying to empower them with practical tools and approaches. I think that's awesome. And, you know, it makes me excited for, you know, interventional radiology and, and knowing that, you know, physicians like you are kind of helping shape, you know, the IR identity. And then also with this ethics project, it makes me Makes you feel uh, proud to be an interventional radiologist. I feel like we're, you know, we're on the right course here. All right, Eric, any last thoughts on any, any stones left unturned or any final thoughts? Well, I think the main thing is just, I wanted to give a shout out at some point to say that it's, it's not like that it's, it's me doing all this, that we actually have a, a whole team. So SIR put together an applied ethics committee, SIO put together an applied ethics task force. And then we have a, a working group of about 30 faculty and trainees doing this stuff that span institutions all across the country and now also some people abroad as well. So it's to say that none of this would happen without that team. And it's been a very effective team that I'm super proud to be a part of. And so I wanted to just give a shout out to that group. And if anyone listening is interested in getting involved in these topics or anything like that, there's plenty to do because it's a it's a wide open area of our specialty that I think that we can make a lot of meaningful impact by thinking about. Awesome. So to our audience, that about wraps things up for today. So thank you for listening. I think we covered an important topic today. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to su uh, support the show, here are two easy ways. First, take one second and press the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on. This helps platforms like iTunes or Spotify know that you, our audience, value what we're doing and you're interested in getting our latest content as we're producing it. Second, if you're really getting value from these podcasts, please go to iTunes and leave us a short written review. This helps us in so many different ways. Plus, we love to get the feedback. It's sometimes very hilarious. That about wraps things up. We'll see you next time on the Back Table Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you.